in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, here's what he says. Therefore. Now, anytime you see the word therefore, what, what Paul or the writer is saying is, based on what I have just said, therefore, do this. And so in, in the verses prior to this, Paul had talked about how God changes a person's life when they're saved and how we should, you know, there, there's... The Christian life should be different from the life we lived before we were saved and how it should be different. And so he says, he, he kind of turns a corner. Therefore, based on that, be imitators of God as dear children. You know what an imitator is, right? An imitator. Someone who mimics someone else. An imitator. We are to be like God. We are to be similar to God. We are to live as God would have us to live because we're his children, his dear children. And so, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. And so how can we understand these verses? Well, first of all, Paul states the goal of the Christian life. You know what the goal of the Christian life is? The goal of the Christian life is not to be saved. You're not a Christian unless you're saved. That's not the goal of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is not to go to heaven. You're going to heaven. If you're saved and if you're a Christian, you're going to heaven. So what is the goal of the Christian life in this world? What is the goal? God saved us. So what is the purpose of God's salvation for us in this life? What is, what, you know, what is the goal? And the goal of the Christian life is this, to become imitators of God. In other words, you could put it like this. The goal of the Christian life is to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ every day. Amen. Our goal is to become more like Jesus in our actions, in our attitudes, in our commitment, in our beliefs. To become more and more like Jesus every day. That's the goal of the Christian life. Now, we'll never achieve that goal fully. And there'll be sometimes when you're closer to that goal and then you'll fall back. And then you'll, you know, the, the, but it, it's always the goal that is set for, before us as Christians. And so Paul says, okay, Ephesians, now listen. You're a bunch of pagans who got saved and God has changed your life. Understand this. The goal of the Christian life is to be an imitator of God. 
to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ every, every day. Now, Paul fills in the gap later in this chapter. How do you become an imitator of God? How can you sustain that to become an imitator of God? How can you, how, how can you grow as a Christian? The, the goal always should be, am I a better Christian today than I was a year ago? Am I better? Am I closer to the Lord? Am I more committed to Him? I don't care how long you've been living. The goal always is to ask yourself, am I a better Christian today than I was a year ago at this time? The only way for us to, to grow in the Christian life is to yield ourselves consistently to the control of the Holy Spirit. Every day, the Holy Spirit is our partner. He's the presence of God in our life. He is our friend. He is our comforter. He is our, the power of God in our life. He is, he is our helper. He is our counselor. And, and, and so daily, you know, we should yield control of our life to the Holy Spirit. Paul will say later in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, be continually live under the control of the Holy Spirit. So the Christian life really is a day-by-day -day walk with God. And day-by-day, -day, we yield ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit because we want to grow to be what God would have us to be, to be more Christ-like every day. So in these verses, Paul says that there are two ways that we are to imitate God. He, he focuses on two ways that we are to be imitators of God. Number one, he says... We are to imitate God in his love. And number two, he says, we are to imitate God in his holiness. Listen again, verses one and two. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Listen, walk in love. Walk. Daily live your life. The word walk is, is a reference to a daily walk of life in this world. Walk in love. Let your life, your everyday life be characterized by Christ-like love. Walk in love as Christ also loved us. Our goal is to love others as we have been loved. As Christ has loved us, Giving and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. In other words, what, what Paul says is, okay, I want you to be an imitator of God. God wants you to be an imitator of, of him. And first of all, let's focus on this. We need to be imitators of the love of God. Now the word love, the word walk, let's just talk about that a minute. The word walk means it, it signifies the everyday walk of life. You know, your every, how you live every day, how you walk around in this world, the everyday walk of life. As we walk around in this world, we are to continually be growing in our ability to love others as we have been loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's our goal. To walk in love. Now the word love is a word that 
you know, in, in this particular, there were three words, there are three words translated love in, in the New Testament. One of them is eros. That's an erotic kind of love, a physical kind of love. The other word is philo. That's a brotherly kind of love, a filial kind of love, a family kind of love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. What a misnamed city that is. But anyway, you know, phila. The third word is the word agape. Now, the word agape is a very interesting word. When the writers of the New Testament wanted to write about the love of God, they couldn't use the word eros. That doesn't fit. And they couldn't use the word phila. You know, God is our friend, but that word just didn't fit. And so they said, well, what kind of word? How you, how, what word are you going to use to describe God's love? Now, the New Testament is written with what is called Koine Greek, which means everyday Greek. It's different from classical Greek. Classical Greek was a refined language of the ancient times. Koine Greek was everyday Greek. You know, we talk everyday English. <laughs> well, Koine Greek was everyday Greek. It's interesting. It's very interesting. That when Jesus came into the world, there basically was, in the Roman world, one language that everybody understood. Because Koine Greek was a universal language that was spoken throughout the Roman world. In other words, when missionaries would go to other places to preach the gospel in the early days of the church, they didn't have to learn another language like missionaries have to do that today. Everybody spoke Koine Greek. That's one of the contributions of the Greek uh, civilization. That language that was adopted almost by everybody. And so when the writers of the New Testament, they said, well, what kind of word are we going to use to describe God's love? Well, they couldn't use... Eros, they couldn't use phila, so they looked on the cupboard of the, of, the, of the language, the Greek language, and they found this word over here in the corner, the word agape. And the word agape was rarely used. It was almost like it was a word empty of meaning, a word that was rarely used in classical Greek or Koine Greek. And so the writers of the New Testament said this, We'll take that word that's empty of meaning and we'll give it a meaning and that meaning will be God's love. And so when they, when, when they write about God's love, if you read it in the original language, you will always find the word agape. It's different from any kind of human love. It is a self-giving love. It is a self-sacrificing love. It is a love, God loves us, and his love for us is not determined on our worth or value. His love is determined by his nature. In other words, he loves us even though we're not lovable. <laughs> he loves us even though we don't deserve his love. You know, God loves us because it's his nature to love. God's love is not dependent upon the, the, the worth or the value of the subject that is love, to be loved. It is dependent upon the nature of God. God loves because God is love, and that's who he is. And so how did God love us? 
Well, God chose to love us because it's his nature. God loved us even though we didn't deserve it. God's love was not passive. God's love was, he, he took an action, was expressed in an, an action. The greatest action of God's love was to send Christ for us. God's love, you know, was for us was a self-giving, self-sacrificing love. He loved us even though we didn't deserve to be loved, even though we were rebels against him. He still loved us. And he loved us in many ways, but the greatest way was to he gave Christ to die on the cross for our sins. So Paul says, as Christ, as, as God has loved you, therefore you should love others. We're to love others with a Christ-like love. Now, you know, we read that in the Bible. And to be honest with you, there's some things in the Bible that we read and yeah, it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. Yeah, we know, well, we know the Bible's supposed to say that. We don't really concentrate on it. But think about this. God wants us to love others with the same kind of love for which he loved us with. He wants us to grow in Christ-like love. Now, Christ-like love, first and foremost, is not emotional. You see, we usually think of love, we think of emotion. You know? That guy and that gal kissing on the, on the television, it's full of emotion. And they talk about having a spark. <laughs> and they talk about falling in love. You know, that concept of falling in love actually came from Shakespeare's plays. There's no such thing in the Bible as falling in love. <laughs> no, nothing like that at all. God's love is not first and foremost, Christ's love is not first and foremost emotion. God's love is an act of the will. You choose to love another person. You love them even though they don't deserve it. You love them even though they don't love you. You love them even if you don't like them. And you love them even if they don't like you. Love is a choice. God chose to love us. We were not lovable. Nothing in us was lovable to God. Um, Tony Evans, great black preacher, uh, African-American preacher from Dallas, Texas. (laughs) A great preacher, and you can hear him on the radio sometimes. Tony Evans, I've heard him preach uh, many times. A tremendous ministry in Dallas, Texas. I heard him preach at a pastor's conference at a Southern Baptist Convention one time, and this was the this was the title of his message. Now he's a black man himself. Title of his message: Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro. <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He turned to Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro. That was it. That was the name. That was the title of his sermon. But it was a tremendous sermon. He said he, he grew up, you know, when, when, his, when his son was little, he said he got up in the middle of the night one night and went to the kitchen to get him something to drink. And his 13-year-old son was in the kitchen sitting at the table. And his son had all this stuff lined up around the, the, on the table. 
you know, made a little fenced-in area with, you know, bottle, a ketchup bottle and this kind of thing. And his son had a roach in the middle of that playing with the roach. And he went to preaching his son a sermon. <laughs> Boy, what are you doing? But he said, you know, he got to thinking about that. When God looks at us, you know what he sees? He sees a roach. Vile, wicked, ungodly, immoral, nothing in us appealing in any way that God should love us. But God chooses to love us so that we're no longer wretched, but we're made into the children of God. So how do you grow in Christ-like love? You choose to love people even though they don't deserve it. And see what happens is, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't live your life based on emotions. Now it's good to have emotions. God's emotional. We're emotional. It's good to have emotions, but you don't. Uh, you, your emotional being is the most shallow part of who you are, because you can be happy one minute, and ten minutes later you're as sad as you can be. Your your emotions are fickle. They're 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 necessary. They're good. We should express them, but they're at the surface of who we are. You don't, you don't love by emotion. You love by a choice. You love by an act of, the will, uh, of, will, of your will. And we are to love people even when they don't deserve to be loved. And we are to care for people. Paul described this kind of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Remember the love chapter? He said, love is patient and kind. Am I growing in patience and kindness? The word patience has to do with not patience under circumstances. There's a word that talks about being patient under difficult circumstances, of bearing up under of difficult circumstances. But this word for patient is the word to be patient with people, <laughs> being patient with difficult people. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love is not boastful. Love is not proud. Love is not rude. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable. <laughs> Love keeps no record of being wronged. That's an accounting term. Which, you know, you know, in, in accounting, people keep record of stuff. Record of what you buy, record of what you, you know, your, your bills you pay, record of this, record of that, and the other. And Paul says, love does not keep a record of wrongs. I've seen people who are on the outs with other people because of something that happened 10 years ago. You know, ten years, some little old thing happened 10 years ago and they still hadn't got over it. <laughs> they still got that thing written down in their record of wrongs. And they'll come to me and say, Brother Chris, you know what he did to me? I said, well, when did that happen? 10 years ago and I ain't forgot it. No, love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love does not rejoice about injustice. 
but rejoices in the truth. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It is always hopeful, endures through every circumstance. And so Paul says, look, as dear children of God, we are always to be growing in our, we are to be imitators of God and we're to imitate his love. Now that's hard to do, you know, but we're to be growing in that. You don't arrive at that you don't get saved one day and the next day, boom, there you are. That's a lifelong journey of growing in Christ-like love. And we have that Peter syndrome with us. You know, the apostle Peter, he could, be, he could be ready to attack hell with a water pistol one minute and deny the Lord the next. And we're somewhat inconsistent at times in our Christian life. But we are to be growing in our love. That makes sense. We are to be growing, imitating God in our love. And, you know, we talk a lot about love and loving other people and that kind of thing. We talk a lot about it. Sometimes we don't do it, though. Not like we ought to. Then he says we're to, be imita we are to imitate God in his holiness. We're to imitate God in his love and in his holiness. And then he starts rattling off all of this stuff that ought not to be in the Christian life. And he starts off with fornication. You know, there's just some subjects you don't hear a lot of sermons about. <laughs> and these days, you don't hardly ever hear anything about fornication. It's a Bible word. The word fornication, the word that is translated fornication is the word pornea. It is the word which we get pornography from. You take the word pornea and you add the word graft to it, you know? Um, and what you have is you have pornography. It means to write about or to view that which is sexually sinful. Paul said we are, not, we're to, we, we are to imitate God in our holiness. We're to stay away from fornication. It was a general word for any kind of sexual sin. It was used in ancient times to refer to any kind of sexual sin. Adultery, premarital sex, bestiality, homosexuality, pedophilia, any kind of unchastity, prostitution, and holotry. I don't even like talking about that stuff. You know what? I don't like talking about that stuff. But it's in the Bible. We're to stay away from that kind of thing. Paul says there is no place at all for that kind of sin in the life of the believer. That should never be named not one time among the saints. Never. And see what we have today is we have a lot in, in church life people blurring the lines. Well, you know, there might be some circumstances and some situations, you know, and people try to, you know, they, they try to make excuses for why something like that might be acceptable in some circumstances and in some situations. Oh, but Brother Chris, you don't understand. Yada, yada, yada. You know, in our case, yada, yada, yada. Listen, the Bible gives no leeway to it whatsoever. Fornication, sexual sin in any way is a sin against Almighty God. 
And that includes homosexuality and trans vice, trans whatever the thing is. They got now and all of that, and you know, people want the church to accept it, and there's great pressure on the church to accept it and all that kind of thing. The Bible says it's sin, and I'm sorry, I can't say something's right if the Bible declares it to be a sin. And somewhere down the line, the church in America's gotta say, okay, we're gonna go to jail for this, we're gonna get arrested for this, but we're gonna say it like it is. And you don't do it out of hatred. And you don't do it. People say, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Yes, he did. He used this exact same word and described it as being sinful. And Paul says that kind of thing has no place in the Christian life. Then he talked about uncleanness. Refers to something vile, rotting, decaying. Evil. Covetousness. He talks about covetousness. We're not to covet you know, what belongs to other people. We're to have a clean life. Then Paul says we're not to be involved in filthy language, foolish talking, or coarse jesting. Verse 4. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather of giving thanks. The word filthiness is a general word for obscenity. Words that are disgraceful. Foolish talking is literally stupid speech. Filthy gutter talk. That should never be found in the mouth of a Christian. I want to tell you, I'm going to give you a, 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 an axiom. Dirty mouth, dirty heart. What's in the heart will come out of the mouth. And if you got a dirty mouth, you got a dirty heart. And if you got a dirty heart, then you don't know the Lord. The psalmist says, He has put a new song in my mouth. The Lord has put a new song in my mouth. Now, that doesn't mean every now and then a Christian may say something they ought not to say, you know. But if it's the practice of your life, to talk in that kind of way, then there's something seriously wrong. Anytime I hear somebody using that kind of language, that proverb, that axiom's always there. Dirty mouth, dirty heart. You know? Listen, the same language you use in church ought to be the same language you use anywhere else. My kids know I'm not perfect. But they also know I'm not a fake. Because what I am here and how I talk here is how I talk at the house or anywhere else. I don't have to get up on a Sunday morning and say, well, I got to put my Sunday suit on and I got to put my Sunday language on and I got to put my Sunday talking on. No. It is what it is. You know? We are not to use coarse jesting. Dirty talk, innuendo that is more clever and sophisticated. <laughs> We're not to use that kind of language. Paul said, be imitators of God in love and in holiness. Watch your mouth. Watch your life. Be clean. Be holy like God. Don't make excuses for unholiness in your life. Be right. Verse 5. 
The Bible makes it clear that the person whose life is constantly characterized by sexual sin and filthy talk, the person who lives and talks like that on a daily basis, is not a Christian. That's what it says. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul says the habitual fornicator and the filthy talker is not saved. That reveals the reality of their lostness. Now, they don't act like that and talk like that. You know, they're not lost because they act like that and talk like that. They act like that and talk like that because they're lost. <laughs> it is inevitable. How you live doesn't determine whether you're saved or not, but it defines whether you're saved or not. Because what happens when a person is saved, God does a work of, he, he changes us. The moment a person is saved, God begins to clean up their life clean up their mouth, begins to make a difference in their life. Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now listen, teaching us, the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Paul said, when you're saved, the grace of God begins to teach you that you need to live a good and holy life because the God who saved you is a holy God. Ephesians 5, 6, and 7, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Sexual sin and filthy language are not characteristics of the children of God. We may fall. We may fail. You know, Christians can do that. Christians can act stupid and do stupid things at times. But that's not going to characterize their life. And so Paul gets in the nitty gritty here now. <laughs> he gets the down where we're living he says, okay, you're dear children of God. Now act like it. You're a child of God, act like it. I imagine there's sometimes when God looks down at some people and they're doing what they're doing and they say they're a child of God, I imagine sometimes maybe God is saying, please don't tell people that. Please don't tell people you're my child. Not the way you're acting, not the way you're talking. You are a child of God. Now act like it. Don't dishonor your Lord. Don't dishonor your heavenly Father. Be imitators of God's love. Be imitators of God's holiness. Now see, I'll never get invited on Oprah Winfrey's show talking like that. And if that never happens, that's okay with me. See, that's just, that's, and people don't like to hear that kind of thing. They don't want to hear that, you know. They want to hear that guy with the slick back hair. You know, the smile. You got the smile. And he's done had so much Botox, you know, he can't even not smile, you know. And he's, like, and he's all, you know, and your best life now and all of that kind of just, no. They don't want to hear that. You know, they don't want to hear that. But that's in the Bible. 
That's just like John 3, 16. We need to hear it. So the challenge is, Paul was saying, look, you live in a pagan world. You can't be a pagan. Don't be a pagan. Be different. See, there, there's, there's, sometimes there's a movement to think we're not going to win. We'll win the world if we become like the world. And so we be, you know, the church will become like the world and how it presents itself and in its worship and that kind of thing. Yeah, for us to attract the world, we've got to be like the world and how we do things and how we present ourselves and that kind of thing. No, God says we win the world by being exactly opposite from the world and nothing like the world. We show them who God is and God ain't nothing like this world. 